Lots of great stuff going on in our uh, community of faith. Great to see you guys. Great to have you here. Um, We are, as uh, Jeff mentioned, we're continuing our study in Luke 22. So if you have your Bible, uh, go ahead and make your way there. Um, We're going to be looking at uh, part of this is around the Lord's Supper. And so I want to actually just make a quick mention of that, our, our elements, because of Our uh, COVID situation are on your chairs, so you've got one of these nearby, so you can grab that whenever it's time at the end of our service. But also, I want to say to our folks online, um, if you've got maybe some crackers and some uh, grape juice somewhere nearby, grab that, and you can be participating with us as well. Um, But certainly, it's a meal that you can celebrate anytime with your family, with friends. Uh, It's a great reminder, as we'll see this morning. Um, What I want to do as we head into this text is I want to invite you to use sort of your redeemed imagination. I want you to join Jesus and his 12 disciples in this uh, private room. And I want you to be thinking about this as one of the most significant moments in all of human history. Jesus is just about to be arrested eventually go to the cross and rise again. But these literally are his last moments with his men. And what he says in these moments are life-changing. And and honestly, my hope for this morning is that as we hear these words, as we think about them together, that we would leave today changed. I know that may sound a little grandiose, but I would love for us, I would love for me, to be changed as a result of entering into this moment with Jesus and his men. So I hope that you can go there. To set the stage, there's a great statement in John 13 uh, as John is setting up this moment. He says this, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. Love that. As you enter into that room with Jesus, you need to know that this is him loving you to the end. That this is the best that he has to offer you um, in terms of instruction and guidance and encouragement. Now, when I say that word love, a lot of times, especially here we are around Valentine's Day, it can be a little sweet and nice and uh, kind of romanticized. And, you know, as I studied this chapter and this moment in history, it feels a whole lot more like tough love to me. One commentator said, this is an evening of painful revelation. And as I thought about that, I thought, you know, there were times over the years, we have four kids and where uh, I just was like, hey, We're out of sorts here, so we need to pull everybody together. This was toddlers, middle schoolers, high schoolers. It's like, hey, guys, huddle up. Let's pull it in here because we need to get back on track. I feel a little bit like that's what Jesus is doing with his men. He's just saying everything is going to change in, in the next 24 hours for them. And he knows there's a lot of stuff that needs to be addressed. And so he pulls them together in this transformational moment, and he begins to give them some instruction that they desperately need. Probably the greatest summary of this moment 
is in Ephesians 5, 15, and 16. Listen to these words. I think they'll mean even more to you as we get to the end of the morning. But he says, look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. That's exactly what Jesus is doing with his men. He's saying, listen guys. You're going to need to walk as wise men, not as unwise men. You're going to have to make the best use of every moment. And the reason is, is because the days, the world, history, it's evil. It's opposed to the things of God. And if you aren't walking intentionally, you're going to get swept away in the midst of all of that. So great, great instruction. Um, I'll mention that we have four Gospels in our Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each of them include this moment that we're about to read, but they're a little bit different. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptics, and it's called that because those three Gospels are generally similar. They will organize things a little bit differently here and there. They will add more or less material in any given segment. But generally speaking, we we read those three Gospels and they flow pretty much the same. John, he's kind of the rogue Gospel writer and so he just organizes things all over the place. There's a lot of stuff going on there. But we take all of those together to get a full picture of the life of Christ and his ministry with his disciples. Um, This morning as we get to this segment, Matthew and Mark are very similar. Um, Luke, he organizes his material a little bit differently and I think adds a little bit more than perhaps those others. And then John is the longest and most detailed account of this upper room interaction. It's actually chapters 13 through 17 in his gospel. So that would be a good read just in your devotional time, just to see what John had to say about what took place here. But um, Luke begins with what's known as the Lord's Supper, what we know as the Lord's Supper. Again, these are the final moments with his disciples. So let's see, this, this meal is given a place of prominence as he goes into chapter 22. So let's begin reading in verse 14. When the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So that's Luke's record of the inauguration of the Lord's Supper. I want to make a quick distinction between the Lord's Supper and what we know as the Last Supper. So the Last Supper, that was the Passover meal that everybody, I think Jeff mentioned last week, you've got all of Israel coming into Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, which was a celebration that they had been given centuries earlier, drawing their attention back to their deliverance from Egypt. So they're given this meal. 
It's got a lot of particulars associated with it, but that meal was instructive. It was to help them remember what God had done in delivering them from Egypt, and it was designed to help them look forward with expectation or anticipation of a Messiah. Lots of symbolism going on in all the elements of that meal. That's the Last Supper. Last because this is the Last Supper that Jesus will share with his disciples. Notice that he points to a later supper that's going to come, and he's not going to participate until that day. That day, and I know there's a, this is a lot to take in, but that day is pointing to Revelation 19, another supper called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. That's when all things are brought to conclusion. All things are made new. So Jesus is saying, I'm not going to eat this meal from now until the marriage supper of the Lamb. In between, Jesus is going to set up a meal for his people called the Lord's Supper. And it's only going to have two elements, but they're very important in terms of their significance. Those elements are taken out of this larger meal, the Last Supper, the Passover meal, He pulls those out and presents them to his men as a way of reminder. I've actually called it a ransom receipt, a ransom receipt. You know, we talked about this series and this moment in Jesus' life as being a ransom paid for the penalty of sin to deliver people from the consequences of their sin. So this meal is actually intended just like a receipt. When you go make a purchase, you get a receipt. That's proof that there was a payment made, right? So that's what this meal is for God's people. They have this meal to remind them that the wage of their sin was paid in full, as Jesus said. And so they can always go back to it again and again, rehearse, recall, celebrate God's work on their behalf. Now in Luke's gospel, there's, a, there's two cups mentioned and bread. So notice there was a first cup, there was bread mentioned, and then a second cup. That is unique to Luke. In Matthew and Mark, only a cup and bread are mentioned. There's lots of discussion and debate around there. I don't, I don't think it's really that complicated. The Passover meal, it had four cups of wine included in that script that I mentioned just a moment ago. So four times a cup of wine was brought out. That was part of the ceremony. So what what Luke is doing here is highlighting two of those cups that Jesus used to inaugurate this Lord's Supper that we're studying this morning. The first cup would have been at the beginning of the Passover meal, and that was just basically a way to get into the meal and offer thanksgiving. The bread would have been offered with the meal itself further along into it. And then the, the second cup is actually, I know this is confusing, the third cup in the meal. That's where Jesus inaugurated the cup that would symbolize his blood and the new covenant. So that's the context for those two elements. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. The importance of the meal has been debated for centuries, and and specifically it gets down to what is the presence of Christ in the meal. Now, I know in this room, people are coming from all kinds of different church backgrounds and heritages and traditions. You probably have some idea about the significance of the Lord's Supper 
I want to present to you four views of the presence of Christ in this meal. And I want to explain what I think uh, Jesus is going for here as he sets this meal up for his men. So the first view of the presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper is called transubstantiation. Trying to say that five times. Um, This is um, preserved and promoted by Roman Catholicism. It was instituted formally in the Council of Trent. This was in the 16th century. And the idea is that when the bread and the wine are officially blessed in mass by a priest, they are literally transformed from bread and wine to the body and the blood of Christ. And there is, honestly, there's salvific significance attached to ingesting the body and blood of Christ. In other words, if you take that meal, that has something to do with your salvation. Obviously, there are very scary implications from a gospel perspective about that idea. But that is transubstantiation, is the complete transformation of the elements into the body and blood of Christ. A step back from that is called consubstantiation. And that's the idea that the body and blood of Christ, Christ himself is present in, with, and under the elements, but it's not the same as. Think of it like a sponge and water. So a sponge can have water in it, but the water isn't the sponge and the sponge isn't the water. That's the idea. That's consubstantiation. Once again, still talking about a transformation happening at the moment of uh, taking this, these elements. The third one is called spiritual or real presence. This view holds to a symbolic understanding of bread and wine, but it doesn't stop at just mere symbolism this view would say that those elements actually bring us into, when we take them, into the presence of Christ and his benefits. That's the spiritual or real presence view. And then the final view, and I'll tell you that I believe this is really what's going on here as we think about this meal. It's called the memorial or the symbolic view of Christ's presence in the Lord's Supper. And this would say that the bread and wine are symbols They are meant to remind us of Christ's body broken and Christ's blood shed for the forgiveness of our sin. It would also say, though, that there is nothing mystical that takes place in the midst of taking this meal. It's no different than when you and I are in prayer, like we're interacting with the Lord spiritually You have the Holy Spirit inside of you. So that's a spiritual interaction. You don't have to have elements in order to engage the Lord in that way, if that makes sense. So a couple of thoughts here just about these four views. I I think I would want to go back and go, well, if I just read this text, just on its face, what would I take away? Jesus often used symbols to talk about himself, like who he is, what he's like, what what God is like. But he never meant for those things to be taken literally. Uh, Augustine said, it is needful that this meal be visibly celebrated. So recognize there are symbols, yet it must be spiritually understood. That seems to be the heart of what Jesus is doing here. 
And I think I would say that if we are literally indwelt by the Holy Spirit, why would we need to ingest literal body and blood in order to interact with God? That just doesn't make sense to me. If we have the Holy Spirit living within us, uh, I wrote down John 14, Ephesians 1, both places say very explicitly that we have the Holy Spirit. So I don't know that we need elements to help us get closer to God, I guess is what I'm saying. We do need those elements to remind us of what is true. That's what Jesus said. Do this in remembrance of me. All that I have done on your behalf that you could never do for yourself. Probably the greatest interpretive filter for this meal is in 1 Corinthians 11. So we have Paul explaining to the church in Corinth how to understand and practice this meal as part of their corporate worship. Here's what he says. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. There it is again. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, what does he say happens? You proclaim the Lord's death until it comes. So it's a message. It's, it's not a mystical exchange. It's a reminder. It's a ransom receipt that your sins have been covered, not by your own works, not by your own merit, but simply by the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. That's what this meal is all about. Now, moving forward as we get further into the meal, another purpose of this meal was to promote unity among the body of Christ. Um, it's in the context of what was called table fellowship, which is a familial idea. It's like I get together with brothers and sisters in Christ, as Jeff so aptly told us a little while ago. So I get together with the family, and we gather around what is true. That's what's happening here. Now, the irony of it all is that while Jesus is gathering his men and promoting unity they are going to be confronted by a gigantic violation of fellowship. Look at verse 21. Behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. Like this is one of those places where the sentimentalism of the upper room kind of breaks down because <laughs> you've got all the guys around the table and they're all kind of leaning in to this new meal that Jesus is presenting to them. And then like a splash of cold water, he's like, hey, by the way, there's a traitor in the camp. There's a guy in this room that doesn't believe there's a guy in this room that is completely opposed to everything that I and my father and you followers are about. Just let that sink in. I, honestly, Judas, I'm not quite sure what to do with him. 
I think he is the greatest conundrum in all of history. And I think he's a caution for sure. But I think his life and certainly how it ended raises a question. I I don't think it should be asked in condescension, like looking down like, gosh, I can't believe somebody would ever do that. I think it's a very sincere question, and here it is. How could one be so close to love and yet so indifferent to it? Like, how could you be in the presence of love incarnate and then just walk away? Now, any of us can do that just practically throughout the day. I'm sure you can think of examples in your life where you know what's true about God. You believe that you are loved perfectly, and yet you still choose to go your own way sometimes. It is a mystery I'm sure we will carry until we go to actually be with the Lord. I think a takeaway here is don't be surprised by a Judas. Um, If it happened to Jesus, (laughs) don't you think it could kind of happen anywhere? And, And don't take it personally. You got to understand, this is a man who he didn't believe, and he's going his own way. And what else would you expect from someone who isn't in on this, who doesn't believe? Of course they would walk away. Of course they would oppose. What we need to know is, as heartbreaking as it is, it's in God's hands. We don't need to take it into ours. Uh, Also, I would say treachery cannot and will not thwart the redemptive and ultimate will of God. God will always accomplish exactly what he wants done with or without any of us or Judas. It's interesting that Judas did exactly what needed to be done to accomplish God's will. So though he thought he was getting in the way, He was cooperating with exactly what God intended to be done. So that's Judas. To make matters worse, you've got the disciples playing religious king of the mountain. So, you know, he's got his own issues, but they're all struggling here. Look at uh, verse 24. It says, a dispute also arose among them. Just once again, write it down. We think of this kind of sweet moment in the upper room. And the the disciples are fighting with each other. They were fighting over which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority, those kings over them, are called benefactors. But not so with you. Not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater? One who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. Another great confrontation. Jesus gives his men two types of authority. On the one hand, he talks about tyrants. On the other hand, he talks about servant leaders. Tyrants leverage their power for their own benefit. That's what a benefactor is. They do good, 
But that good is for them. It's not for anybody else. That's not how they lead. On the other hand, a servant leader, they use their power for the good of those they lead. They're looking for ways. If God has entrusted authority to them, they don't view that authority as being helpful for their own advancement. They're like, I must have been given this by the supreme authority so that I might serve those whom I lead, whom I serve, to care for them, for their benefit. The world is obsessed and intoxicated with power. And that shouldn't surprise us either. I mean, think about it. If all you're living for is this world, then why wouldn't you live all of your life to acquire as much as you can for yourself? That just makes perfect sense. But if you're living for another world, another future, something bigger than you and this world, then acquiring doesn't have the same level of significance. You'd actually be willing to use what you have for the good of someone else, even at your own expense. Jesus is very clear. If you want to lead, he says, become as the youngest. Be a leader as one who serves. You know, I've, I've interacted with guys over the years who had an interest in serving, and it's like they want the big job. They want the important role. They want the visibility. And, and I guess I wonder, well, do you want everything that comes with that? Because in God's kingdom, here's what leadership looks like. You're going to answer for where you took the people who are following you. A leader who really gets this principle, they don't want it. They're just willing to have it if God wants it for them. It's, it's great humility. It's like, I realize Whatever choices I make that other people follow, I am going to answer to the one who gave me that authority to begin with. Very sobering, very humbling. I would say, and I think Jesus would say, you be faithful with what God has given you today and you let him call you to more if that's what he wants for you. But when you get caught up in being the greatest you are set up for some serious problems down the road. For those who misuse their position, there is loss for sure. But those who are faithful stewards of the authority that's given to them, the next thing Jesus does here is he talks about a reward. So this, here's a little encouragement. Verse 28, you, saying to his men, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. You guys have been faithful. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. It's a little bit like Jesus is saying, guys, you have been faithful with little. Kind of like the parable of the talents. In light of that, I'm going to give you more. It is a reward for your faithfulness. But what Jesus is not doing, when he says, I'm assigning you a kingdom, he's not saying, hey, you guys have done pretty good helping me out, so now I'm going to give you a deal of your own. No, he's saying, because you have been faithful to serve under me and with me, I'm going to give you greater scopes of responsibility, 
so that you can represent me in a bigger way than you have up to this point. That's all it is. The assignment of a kingdom is really just to be more engaged in a broader way than they were in the past. I do think that um, Jesus understood that following him would be costly. I mean, he literally said to his guys, if you're going to follow me, you got to deny yourself and take up your cross. That's a death. you got to die to yourself if you're going to follow me and be a part of my kingdom. That's what he said to them. But it's like here he's saying, I get it that it's hard. I get it that you're sacrificing. But understand that your sacrifice is tied to future reward. You're going to get to be at my table with me leading the kingdom. What a gift. What an encouragement. That would help them stay faithful going forward. Now, after reassuring them with future reward, Jesus shifts back to some pretty serious warning in verse 31. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, man, those are sweet words, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. you got to love Peter, right? Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. That had to be hard to hear, for sure. This will sound a little geeky, but I want to point something out to you. In that first sentence, verse 34, there's two pronouns, the word you... And you can't see this in the English, but in the Greek, those are plural. So Jesus doesn't begin by talking only to Peter. Here's how it would read. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have all of you. That he might sift all of you like wheat. Then he goes back to just speaking directly to Peter and says, I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail. So we know at the arrest, we're going to study this, that everybody scatters. In a sense, everybody denies. They all run for the hills. And that had to be hard for them because they would have liked to have believed that they would stand just like Peter said he would. So it's, I guess it's comforting in a way that Jesus is going, hey, guys, I recognize you got a lot of confidence, but it's probably misplaced. Now, here's what you need to know. Satan wants to sift you like wheat. Here's the picture. When you sifted wheat, you had a sieve, and you put wheat and everything else with it in there, and you shook it. Hopefully, everything, chaff and uh, impurities would all drop out, and you'd be left with wheat. So what Satan wants to do is sift the disciples so that they'll fall out like chaff separated from Jesus, the wheat kernel. You get the picture? And it's interesting that Jesus says, I've prayed for you, not that you wouldn't be sifted, not that you wouldn't fall, but that you would get back up, that your faith would not fail. You would return 
and get back on track as I intended. Um, This is a Job-like scenario. You know where Satan went to God and demanded to have Job and to severely test him by trial and the idea was you know what the only reason Job is faithful to you God is because you take such good care of him why don't you just step back and let me have him for a little while let's see how faithful he stays same idea here Satan wants to sift these men but like with Job I would say like with the disciples uh, with Joseph in Genesis 50 Remember what Joseph said to his brothers, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. Same idea here. What Satan intends, he wants to sift these guys and separate them from Christ. Jesus wants to separate them to sift them from their self-reliance. He wants them to see that, you know what, you don't have it in you to be faithful. You're going to need God to give you what you don't possess so that you can walk well with him. Peter, he's our model for this. He says, I'm not, I'm not going to back down. I'll go to jail. I'll, go, I'll die for you. And, of course, Jesus. And I, I just I don't know what that must have been like, but just imagine Peter sitting there and Jesus looks at him right in the eyes and says, you're going to be the first. <laughs> You're going down, Peter, but I have prayed for you. The warning is, it's in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Like you and I don't need to boast about our devotion. We need to boast about our need because God can move into that place and do amazing things that we can never do on our own. And then just be encouraged by this uh, statement of prayer. I'll also mention to you Romans 8.34. Jot that down. Hebrews 7.25. We are told that Jesus Christ is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. He is praying for you right now. And when you are in the darkest of places, he's praying for you. And he knows that you and I are going to get it wrong at times. We are going to falter. What he's praying is that our faith would not fail. That we would, when we stumble, we would get up, we would own our stuff, we would make things right, and then we would return to a place of dependence upon him for all that he wants for us. Such encouragement. Failure does not have to be the last word. It wasn't for Peter. It doesn't have to be for you or for me. And that, that is whether you failed someone or someone has failed you. It doesn't have to be the final word. By God's grace, it doesn't have to be. Well, lastly, so we're going to wrap up here. Before this huddle breaks, Jesus has one little bit of, last bit of instruction for his men. And you can summarize it as suit up. Get ready. It's like, men, when we walk out of this room, it is on. It is going to get crazy. All this instruction that you've received, all that you have seen and heard from me for three years, and even in these moments, you're going to need to bring that to bear when you face what you're about to face. Look at verse 35. Jesus said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, Nothing. 
he said to them, but now, you ought to underline those words, but now, let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressions. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, in response to what Jesus just said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. More about that in a minute. I want you to get the craziness of this moment and what it must have been like for the disciples. So that he's hearkening back to when he sent them out on their missionary journeys. He did that with the 12 and then he did it with 72 disciples after that. On both occasions, when he sent them out, he said, I don't want you to take anything with you. I literally want you to just have nothing. So everywhere you go, every time you enter a city, you're going to knock on a door. And you're going to just trust that those people are going to be hospitable and kind and uh, they're going to support you and take care of you while you're there. That was their posture. And when they came back, they were probably a little bit amazed. Like, And they say it here like, did you ever have need? No. It's the most amazing thing. Everywhere we went, there was somebody there to take care of us. He's like, okay, good. Got that lesson. Now, but now. You better take your knapsack. You better take your money bag. You better even go find a sword. But sell your stuff if you have to to get one. Now, what is going on there? Can't you see the disciples going, okay, wait a minute. Hold on a second. One time you send me out, I'm not supposed to take anything. Another time I'm supposed to take everything. Like, well, which is it? The key to the understanding this passage is in verse 37 where Jesus quotes a, pa- a statement from Isaiah 53. Now, here's what's happening here. They would have been familiar with this passage. Isaiah 53 is about the suffering servant. It is graphic. It is horrific in terms of its description of what the suffering servant endures on behalf of those he is saving. Now, another interesting thing about that passage in Isaiah 53 is certainly Isaiah's writing it, so it's looking forward to a suffering servant. But if you read it, I encourage you to do that this week. It's actually written with a past tense perspective. It's as if there are Jews later looking back and going, why did we treat him that way? How did we miss it? He was doing all of that for us, and we actually played a part. That's the perspective of Isaiah 53. When Jesus quotes it right here, he's saying, I'm that guy. I am the Isaiah 53 suffering servant. And all that is described there, that's going to happen to me. And so here's the takeaway, guys. If it happens to me, What do you think is going to happen to you? See, their their idea was Jesus is our king. He's got everything under control. Kingdom is rolling in. And gosh, we're going to get to sit on some thrones. He's saying, no, guys. All that I suffer on your behalf 
after that, I'm going away. I'll send a helper. Read that in, John, in John's gospel. But while you're waiting, it isn't going to be like your first missionary journey. Don't expect the world to be hospitable. Don't expect them to cheer you on as you do what I've told you to do. The world hates God. Let that sink in. I actually thought this part of this passage is as applicable as anything in here for us today. Because I think Christians in America, we have had it really easy. We've been surrounded by a nation that is sympathetic to a lot that we believe. And I'm not a prophet, but I'm not sure how much longer that's going to last. And I don't think Christians are ever meant to trust the world to take care of them. And yet that's what we do. And we get upset when the world doesn't take care of us, when they're not cheering on our cause. Jesus says, you better be prepared and you better take care of yourself. Now, he's not saying that apart from God's provision. He's just saying the world isn't the place of provision. Your people are. Your community of faith, that's where you're going to find God's provision for you in these very dark and difficult days. He was saying to his men, you're going to need to live life like soldiers behind enemy lines of a world at war with God. Now, specifically, I don't think Jesus was telling them to go get armed, you know, so that they could go take it to the world. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, first of all, he never encouraged his disciples to take up arms and win the world through violence. Never said that. Um, when Peter uses his sword, right, chops off the servant's ear, what does Jesus do? Stop! Cut it out! That's not what that's for. Honestly, in the first century, a sword was as much a tool as it was a weapon. I think what he's saying here is with these items, this is all about you being prepared. You gathering together the things that you're going to need, probably much more in a defensive posture than an offensive one. The gospel is your offense. This last little statement where he says, it is enough, that's actually kind of a, a phrase of dismissal. It's, it's sort of like he says all this about doing what they need to do on their journeys and they're like, hey, look, we got two swords. And he's like, oh, my gosh. It is enough. Let's move on. <laughs> Next topic. That's, that's kind of the feel here. Let's go back to Ephesians 5. Like, what was his whole purpose in all of these instructions? Look carefully, then, how you walk, men. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time. Because the days, the world is evil. That's what it is. Until Jesus comes back. So be ready. How do we walk wisely? Ephesians 6, another great uh, direction for all of us in our devotions. Let me read this one segment to you. Ephesians 6, 10 through 13. Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God 
that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. When he's sifting you, put on your armor. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. So put away the swords. We wrestle against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. That's where the war is fought. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. That is what those men and that's what we need to do in response to this context that we're living in until he returns. So, they break the huddle. Next week, we're going to head over to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jeff will take us into uh, the scene where Jesus is betrayed and arrested. Um, As we leave today, I, I want you to sort of imagine yourself getting up from that seat in the upper room. You're about to walk out. What are you going to take with you? What is it that you need to apply from this, from this passage? Um, maybe you'll think differently about this meal that we're about to celebrate. As a so what, that, that's, that's actually what we're going to do today. Is we're going to take the Lord's Supper. Maybe it will have some new significance for you. As you think about the great gift that uh, God has given you. Um, this is your ransom receipt And it does remind you that it's been paid in full. And again, not because of any work that you did, but because of God's grace and mercy toward you. Practically, um, you have the elements in this little container on a chair near you, so you can grab one of those and you can take it whenever you're comfortable. Um, I want to ask you a few things uh, just to think about as we worship, um, first of all, uh, thank the Lord for this ransom receipt that Jesus left us and the great reminder that it is. Think about those elements and what they signify. Um, You may need to, and I would say probably everybody needs to do some form of confession. It may be something very particular, something specific. It may just be generally like, Lord, I need you. (laughs) That's a good place to start and then maybe build from there. Thank Jesus who was pierced for your transgressions and crushed for your your iniquities. It, It always blows me away to think that Jesus was applying his gift of grace and mercy to me, specifically me, and to you, and to any who would trust in him. And then finally, you may want to ask him to help you fight the good fight, to be ready and to make the best use of the time that you have until he returns. So we're going to worship. I want to invite you to stand if you would. We're going to sing. And then again, you can take those elements whenever you're ready.